Conrad Aska was born in 1974 in the tiny Caribbean nation of Antigua, and by every account, he was an outstanding person. Conrad was the leader of the family, said his brother. We all looked up to him. Aska was certainly a man of deep religious faith, and we know that because his final words in the second before his death were, quote, Lord, you now have my soul. Imagine saying that as your final sentence. But his death is a scandal. The reason he died is a scandal, and many in the aviation industry know about it, but it is never mentioned in public. So we thought we would tell you because there are lessons in his death for all of us who travel commercially. In February of 2019, ASCO was the first officer piloting an Amazon Prime cargo jet for a contractor called Atlas Air. They were flying a Boeing 767. As it approached Houston Airport, ASCO assumed full control of the plane. Seconds later, while attempting to apply the speed brakes to land, ASCO accidentally pressed a switch that put the plane into go-around mode. And that gave the plane an unexpected jolt of thrust. In response to this unexpected jolt, Aska panicked. Instead of checking his instruments to figure out what was going on, he pushed down hard on the control yoke. He pushed as hard as he could. And then the plane nosedived through the clouds and right into the water. The plane was obliterated on impact. It killed him, his co-pilot, and another pilot who was just hitching a ride. So it was obvious from those facts alone that Conrad Aska decent man though he was, should not have been in control of an airplane. And his personnel records confirm that strongly. Before he started flying 767s for Amazon and Atlas Air, he had been a pilot for seven different airlines, including Mesa Airlines. Several instructors at Mesa reported that Aska was often overwhelmed in the cockpit, as he was on the day he died. One pilot later told the NTSB that in emergencies, Aska, quote, became extremely anxious and would start pushing a lot of buttons without thinking about what he was pushing just to be doing something. To be clear, for a pilot, that can be deadly, and it was. Atlas Air says it was not aware of any of this when it hired Aska. But once he arrived at Atlas Air, Aska was so deficient in the simulator that all pilots have to train on that the company had to restart simulator training just for him. All of his other classmates had graduated. Predictably, in its final report into the Atlas Air crash, the NTSB cited as a cause of the deadly crash the, quote, systemic deficiencies in the aviation industry's selection and performance measurement practices, which failed to address the first officer's aptitude-related deficiencies and maladaptive stress response. By the way, those are things that all airlines and the military screen for and have since aviation began. And ask his family, who lost their son and husband and brother, knew that. And so they have gone on to file several lawsuits against Atlas Air and Amazon for gross negligence, specifically for putting this man in the cockpit despite his obvious inability to fly an airplane. So why was he flying an airplane? Well, in his specific case, we do not have a definitive answer, but it seems pretty obvious. Airlines like Atlas Air, in fact, all the airlines, are doing their best to hire and retrain pilots on the basis of irrelevant criteria like their appearance. And your appearance to restate has nothing to do with your ability to fly an airplane or perform heart surgery or do anything. It's immaterial. 
But on their websites, both Amazon and Atlas Air explained that, quote, diversity is paramount in everything they do. Here's from the Atlas Air website, quote, we leverage diversity, equity, and inclusion, DEI, as a business strategy and driver of innovation. We are guided by DEI philosophy. Oh, yes, well, apparently you are. And look at the results. Amazon, of course, says the same thing. This is not an outlier. This is not just happening at Atlas Air. This is happening at every major carrier in the United States. Safety concerns ignored in favor of something called equity. Hiring by appearance, not by ability. This is insane. And in this case, it killed three people. United Airlines has promised that 50% of their new trainees will be, quote, women and minorities. Right. Not the best pilots, but people who look a certain way. Well, as we told you, in December, a United Boeing 777 bound for San Francisco came within seconds of hitting the ocean. It just dropped out of the sky. And the pilots, who apparently were not properly trained or hired for the wrong reasons on the basis of irrelevant criteria, were sent back to training. Thankfully, the hundreds of people on that plane survived. But this kind of thing is happening across the industry. Talk to anyone who works there. Talk to any working pilot right now. The airlines are in a mad scramble to meet equity targets, meaning they are pushing safety aside in favor of ideology. And people will die. People have died. It's going to happen again. This should stop. I'm Tucker Carlson tonight. Brian Wagner was in his early 20s when, like so many young men, his life derailed. He became addicted to drugs. He was depressed. He also watched a lot of porn, and porn gave him the idea that he might, in fact, be a woman. So he consulted doctors, and very quickly they put him on estrogen, and that made his problems much worse. Brian Wagner no longer believes what his doctors told him. He does not identify as female. He is back to how he was born, a man, and he joins us tonight to explain what he went through. Brian, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Um, what, if you could just sum up the I'm sure this is a three-hour-long conversation, but if you could sum up the experience, the amazing experience you had, how, how would you describe it? Well, uh, thank you for having me on, Tucker. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, like you said, um, when I was a young man, when I was in college about close to a decade ago, I... Um, was extremely alienated. I had a drug problem, uh, mainly crystal meth and other party drugs, and I went down a bizarre rabbit hole of online pornography, and I developed a, a sex fetish. Very embarrassing to say, but it's the truth. That's all right. And yeah. um, I went to go see a, a therapist who specialized in uh, sex issues, and she told me that I was really a woman and that she and I had the same brain and that basically all my problems in life were because I was actually a woman in a man's body. Even though I had severe drug problems, I had mood disorders and other, you know, issues. I looked terrible when I went to go see this woman. I was underweight. I was paranoid out of my, ma my mind from using methamphetamines. And uh, none of that mattered. It was all about um, having me go to a clinic to get prescribed estrogen and medicine to prevent my body from making testosterone, which I took for many years. And um, I, my, all my problems got worse. Um, it didn't help me. It just added new problems. And I just feel like the therapist I went to go see was an activist who just so happened to practice therapy, too. 
And um, here in California, there's really nothing to protect people from it. Now it's even more, uh, quite frankly, crazy. It's um, you can just go into one of these informed cl consent clinics, and you don't even need a therapist letter anymore. And it's completely patient-led. It's the only form of medicine that's patient-led. So I just advocate for better safeguarding and high-quality assessments, because I want to help everyone, whether you're D-trans right. or transgender. I want everyone to have good health care and everyone to be protected. And as it is now detransitioning, I just feel like I'm uh, collateral damage for, for a movement that I'm not even part of. They completely ignore me and they don't want to hear these stories, but my story is real, my pain is real, and yeah, it's a real thing. But I just thank God every single day of my life that I never had any plastic surgery. I took hormones and it messed me up. I had my facial hair removed, but I do think that I'll be able to bounce back from this. And the way I always um, describe it, Tucker, is I feel like once I got sober, I, I, I started to have actual gender dysphoria when people were treating me like a woman when I, I didn't before. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was like leaving the twilight zone. You know, some of the better episodes of the twilight zone is when the protagonist leaves the twilight zone, but everyone else is still in it. But, yeah, and I just... I feel like I've been harmed by this, and I just wish that, you know, I don't want anyone else to experience what I experienced. So I'm out of the twilight zone, and, you know, I'm a very happy and successful man, and, um, you know, I just hope that my experience helps somebody. I, I, I don't even, that's one of the saddest stories I've heard in a long time. I don't have anything to add to it other than I hope you tell your story far and wide. I hope it's heard by a lot of people. I think you speak for many, and I'm grateful that you were willing to tell us your story. Brian, thank you. Subscribe to the Fox News YouTube channel to catch our nightly opens, stories that are changing the world and changing your life. I'm Tucker Carlson tonight. So let's say you open the borders to your country and let in seven million new people who had no connection to America whatsoever, didn't speak the language, weren't from here, here illegally, but you did that. That would make the society less cohesive than ever. And then you so mismanaged the economy that it was on the way into recession. That's the last moment you would want to make Americans hate each other on the basis of race, because if you did that, the whole thing could just blow up. Like That's too crazy and reckless. But that's exactly what the current administration, Joe Biden's administration, is doing. Here's Joe Biden. Innocent men, women, children, hung by a noose from trees, bodies burned, drowned, Castrated, lynched for simply being black. Nothing more. Hard to believe, but that's what was done. And some people still want to do that. Some people still want to do that. Who are those people exactly? Vince Everett Ellison is producer of Will You Go to Hell for Me, an amazing documentary he has made that we showed you earlier. He joins us tonight. Vince, thanks so much for coming on. Some people still want to do that. Who is the president talking about? Who are these would-be lynchers? He's probably talking about Democrats because they were the ones doing it before. Uh, when Fair. we look back over history, the Democratic Party were the ones doing Jim Crow that was lynching and killing and castrating black men. And they're still doing it now. Um, you go into any inner city in America, the Democrats run it. I mean, it's a freak show, man. You got Lori Lightfoot and uh, Pete Buttigieg and uh, that crazy Sam Brinkman guy, a Brinkman guy that was running around putting women's clothes on. I mean, th that's just who they are. Uh, it's, 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 it's an insane asylum now that's taken over the Democratic Party. And we have to just start calling it exactly what it is. 
The Democrat Party heaven is an American hell. It is no doubt. You go to any big city and you see dysfunction. You've seen that they released this hip-hop culture and they destroyed every institution that protected the children from these bad things. And now the N-word, the B-word, the W-word is being sung by these artists and they're elevated. They go to the White House in the Super Bowl now. So how can these young men and young women not believe that they're not that? So you got Lori Lightfoot, you got Joe Biden running for re-election. They should be apologizing for ever been in office. They're the worst president and the worst mayor in history. Lori Lightfoot has presided over a dystopia. Every weekend, we look at how many children are dying in Chicago. Um, we look at what Joe Biden has done. I mean, what are they going to run on? Uh, we want to sexually groom your children. Uh, we want to have uh, grown men go to the bathroom with your daughters. Uh, we're going to uh, keep your children locked in failing schools. We want to let fentanyl come across the border. That's, what, that's the only thing they can run on. So what do, what do they say? They hate you because you're black, and we can protect you. Well, look, C.S. Lewis said hell is a choice, and it is, but you can unchoose it. They talk about systemic racism and, and uh, uh, institutional racism. Well, if it is an institutional racism, they are the ones that provide it because they run all the institutions in the black community. They run the schools. Yeah. They run the churches. They destroyed them all. Yeah, it's institutional racism caused by them. They talk about white privilege. Well, let me tell you something. It is privilege to be white, and it's also a privilege to be black. It's a, it's a privilege to me to live in America. It's a privilege to me to be a Christian. And for the Christians in the ghetto, let me tell y'all, you can, you can come above this. You're an heir of Jesus Christ. You're a son of God. Nobody can oppress you. Nobody is better than you. There's no racism that can hold you down. Stand up. Look at these people in the eye and tell them who you are. You are an American. You're strong, you're resilient, and you'll get through this. Amen. Ignore what they say, watch what they do. Vince Everett Ellison, always there calling you go. us to common sense. Appreciate it. His documentary is out this week, and it's great. I'm Tucker Carlson tonight. Here is a breath of hilarity, really one of our favorite stories of all time. A Tanzanian fashion designer based in Houston called Asa Koshman says she lost her luggage to the baggage claim of DCA, Washington Reagan National, back in 2018. A couple of days ago, she was watching Fox News and she saw the coverage of Sam Brinton. That would be Joe Biden's non-binary nuclear waste disposal expert who had this weird fetish involving stealing women's clothes from airport carousels. And then it hit Compson. Sam Brinton was photographed wearing her clothes, and they're very distinctive clothes. You're seeing the side-by-side -side in your screen right now. Now, we're in touch with her. She's in Tanzania right now, but when she gets back, she promises to come on this show and discuss what it's like to have your fashion creations stolen by Joe Biden's nuclear waste, non-binary airport fetishist. But in the meantime, we're joined by Chadwick Moore of The Spectator to assess this ongoing story, which really is, Chadwick, you got to admit, the greatest story ever. Now, I just have to ask, you've been following this since the beginning. You first saw this guy, Sam Britton, was your first thought, I bet this guy never steals women's underwear off airport carousels. <laughs> well, yeah, you have to um, pardon my glee, because I don't think anyone thought this story could possibly get any better. And now, you know, two words that have to apply to him that I would mean sincerely in this case would be 
stunning and really, really brave. It's not like he's parading around in a Gap hoodie. I mean, these are very distinctive, you know, quite lovely clothing that he was wearing, and that poor designer having her creations defiled by the radioactive klepto queen in the energy department. I really feel for her. That must be awful. But uh, this, I'm a little disappointed in in myself and in in fellow journalists that none of us took a closer look at his clothing and asked what exactly he was wearing, because we should have been tipped off the minute we saw some of these outfits that looked like he raided a village in Africa or something. Maybe we would have started getting more answers then. That was not off the rack, and that should have been the first tip-off that he had a Tanzanian designer he was stealing from. Um, and I agree with you. We, we, we fell down on the job. Chad McMoore, great to see you tonight. Thank you. Subscribe to the Fox News YouTube channel to catch our nightly opens, stories that are changing the world and changing your life. I'm Tucker Carlson tonight. This is Audible. You are listening to The Final Battle. Written by David Horowitz. Narrated by Andrew Pearson. Chapter 1. Elections Matter. In a constitutional democracy, elections are sacred rights. They register the will of the people as sovereign and make ballot boxes the ultimate courts of appeal. In creating the American Republic, its founders' greatest fear was the threat posed by partisan factions. They called the threat a tyranny of the majority and feared that a victorious party would gain authority in all aspects of public life and use the powers of the federal government to impose a one-party state on everyone else. A tyranny of the majority could destroy democracy from within. To prevent America's descent into such a tyranny, the founders crafted constitutional rules that were designed to force compromise and blunt the destructive passions that partisan agendas unleashed. The Founders' fears inspired a system of checks and balances, which took the form of separations and divisions of powers, and their decentralization. These measures were designed to frustrate the ambitions of the majority and limit the governmental powers it might control. The skepticism and caution of the Founders reflected their Christian faith, which recognized that human beings are flawed by nature, and their ambitions are not to be trusted. Among the provisions the Constitution made to thwart unruly schemes were these. Indirect elections through a state-based electoral college, an independent judiciary able to veto the wishes of legislative majorities, and a federal system that put both law enforcement agencies and voting regulations in the hands of state legislatures rather than the central power in Washington, D.C., The constitutional system the Founders devised endowed citizens with unprecedented freedoms, framed as limits to governmental powers. Their purpose was to protect the people from governmental abuse and to encourage them to challenge orthodoxy in all its forms. They had a paradoxical result as well. At the same time the constitutional order decentralized power, it also acted as a unifying force. By protecting electoral minorities, it enabled a community of diverse, voluntary associations to prosper and grow, and to come together as one people to meet the challenges posed by enemies abroad and at home. So long as the principles and procedures written into the Constitution remained universally binding, the Republic was destined to endure. In the nation's 250-year history, only a conflict as irreconcilable as the one pitting freedom against slavery had torn its fabric so irreparably as to precipitate a civil war.
All other conflicts were resolved by compromise and self-restraint. If an election was lost, there was always an opportunity provided to the defeated to regroup and win the next one. America now faces a crisis that many compare to the onset of the Civil War. One prominent characteristic of the fractures in the current body politic is that all the moderating institutions described above, which were designed by the founders to soften the edges of political conflict and unify the nation, are under siege by the Democrat Party and its supporters. These include the Electoral College and Senate, which Democrats seek to abolish as undemocratic. The independent judiciary, which Democrats want to make an appendage of the legislative branch by packing the Supreme Court. The federal system, which reserves to the states rights and powers not specifically assigned to the bureaucracies in Washington. And the integrity of the electoral system, which Democrats refuse to protect by validating ballots through voter IDs. Most dangerous of all, by insisting that the electorate be divided by race, by demonizing their opponents as white supremacists and racists, and by attempting to criminalize religious beliefs, Democrats have conducted a sustained assault on the spirit of compromise that binds the Union together and set the nation on the path to a one-party state. The Divisions That Confront Us the divisions between domestic factions, coupled with the attacks on moderating institutions, now threaten to destroy the traditions that bring Americans together. They undermine the possibility of bipartisan solutions to common problems like viral pandemics and civil disorders. Americans speak now in different and antagonistic political languages, and the two parties are so polarized that the electoral process itself is under attack. Concerns about the integrity of the electoral process are not new, but had already reached a critical point during the 2000 presidential election because of a disputed ballot count in Florida. Ultimately, the Supreme Court had to be brought in to adjudicate the dispute, which it resolved in favor of the Republican candidate George W. Bush, making him America's 43rd president. This electoral result was never accepted by the defeated Democrats, who referred to Bush as selected rather than elected, and therefore illegitimate. In 2003, this fracture in the body politic led directly to an unprecedented reversal of Democrat support for the war in Iraq. It was a war that George W. Bush had initiated and Democrats had authorized. A Democrat presidential primary happened to be taking place in the spring of 2003 at the same time as the American invasion. When an anti-war activist named Howard Dean looked to be running away with the nomination, Democrats in mass turned against the war they had authorized. Nothing had changed on the battlefield to ignite this opposition. Democrats justified their defection by demonizing the president whom they already considered a political imposter because of the contested Florida vote. Democrats claimed that Bush had lied about the intelligence regarding weapons of mass destruction in order to deceive them into supporting the war. This was a transparently false charge, since Democrats sitting on the Intelligence Committees had access to the same information that Bush had relied on. But this fact didn't prevent Democrats from running their 2004 presidential campaign on the theme, Bush lied, people died. A slander that drove a wedge between the parties that would have grave consequences for both the war and the political future. The Carter-Baker Commission Attempts to Fix the Problem 
To address the problem that had so weakened American unity and the nation's ability to defend itself, former Democrat President Jimmy Carter joined forces with former Republican Secretary of State James Baker. Together, they created the Carter-Baker Commission on Federal Election Reform. After a year-long investigation, they issued a report with a series of recommendations designed to strengthen the integrity of the election process and reunify the nation. Among their key conclusions were recommendations to increase voter ID requirements, to minimize the use of mail-in ballots, which remain the largest source of potential voter fraud, to ban ballot harvesting by third parties, to purge voter rolls of all ineligible or fraudulent names, and to allow election observers to monitor the ballot counting without restraint or obstruction. By 2019, a year before the Biden-Trump election contest, the country had become so politically polarized that Democrats launched a massive campaign to change the election laws. They chose to do so in ways that would reverse every one of the Carter-Baker recommendations and make election fraud easier. They justified these efforts as attempts to end race-based voter suppression, as though blacks and other minorities were incapable of complying with the same rules that whites did. To implement their changes, the Democrats filed nearly 300 lawsuits, many focused on the battleground states. The suits were designed to expand the use of mail-in ballots, dilute voter ID requirements, permit third-party ballot harvesting, and make legal other practices that Carter Baker had specifically sought to eliminate. Democrats followed these initial attacks on election integrity by dispatching 600 lawyers and 10,000 volunteers to as many states as possible three months before the 2020 presidential election, including all the battleground states. Their goal was to change the election laws by loosening and overturning regulations that had been instituted to make the process more secure. Trump fights back. Alarmed by the Democrats' attack on election procedures, Trump responded with a warning on his Twitter feed. With universal mail-in voting, not absentee voting, which is good, 2020 will be the most inaccurate and fraudulent election in history. It will be a great embarrassment to the USA. Then he threw out the question, delay the election until people can properly, securely, and safely vote? It was a characteristic misstep. Trump didn't have the authority to delay the election, but the implication that he might try anyway fed the Democrats' ongoing suspicions that Trump would use his executive powers to stop the election and remain permanently in office. Months earlier, his opponent Joe Biden had made exactly that charge. Mark my words, Biden said in April, I think he's going to try to kick back the election somehow, come up with some rationale why it can't be held. As with the accusations that Bush had lied, Democrats' extravagantly low opinions of Trump encouraged their supporters to take such speculations seriously. To Trump and his supporters, the meaning of the new rules was clear. The Democrats were going to try to steal the election. According to polls, 61% of Democrats regarded Trump and his supporters as racists, and 54% regarded them as ignorant, signs of how far factional polarization had gone. Their hyperventilating hatred of Trump and his voters was so great that they were ready to consider all means available to stop him. On the other hand, there was little that Trump could do to prevent the damaging effect the new rules would have on his chances. He was forced to watch, for example, as Democrats in Pennsylvania, a key battleground state with 20 electoral votes, 
changed the election rules to favor themselves, even though they were violating the U.S. Constitution in doing so. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 of the U.S. Constitution clearly stipulates that the rules governing elections are the jurisdiction of the legislatures of the states. This provision was designed to decentralize and democratize the voting process, thwarting the efforts of a power grab by one party through institutions whose officials were unelected. Disregarding this clear constitutional order, the Democrat legal squads bypassed the Pennsylvania legislature, which was controlled by Republicans, and appealed directly to the state Supreme Court, on which Democrats had a 5-2 majority. The Democrat-dominated state Supreme Court responded by illegally authorizing a series of new election rules, dramatically favoring the Democrats. For example, as best-selling author Mark Levin explained, just months before the 2020 general election, that court rewrote the state election laws to eliminate signature requirements or signature matching, eliminate postal markings that were intended to ensure votes were timely, and extend the counting of mail-in ballots to Friday at 5 p.m. State law had set a hard date and time, Election Day, which was the previous Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. In other words, the Democrats had fundamentally altered Pennsylvania's election laws and nullified the federal constitutional role of the Republican legislature. The loosening of the rules and the obstruction of Republican poll watchers made ballot dumps easier and led to dramatic spikes in the results. A Pennsylvania Senate hearing three weeks after the election was presented with sworn testimony that in one such dump, Biden received roughly 570,000 votes, or 99.4% of those cast, while Trump received only 3,200, or 0.6% ballots submitted. Biden's margin in winning Pennsylvania was about 81,000 votes. In an attempt to close the barn door before it was too late, Trump's team and supporters filed 61 lawsuits, almost none of which were ever heard by the judges, who rejected them out of court. They did so ostensibly on procedural grounds, but more likely out of partisan prejudice or fear of the damaging consequences to their institutions if they overturned a presidential election result. Also dismissed by these same courts were thousands of affidavits and declarations testimony given by witnesses in a variety of state venues, election analyses published by think tanks and legal centers, and video as well as photographic evidence of possible corruption in the ballot counting process. The Most Votes Ever Cast When the votes were counted and the results were in, two factors stood out as particularly painful for Trump. The first and most important was the conviction that he had won. For more than four years, Democrats and their media allies had waged a relentless slander campaign against him, calling him worse than Hitler, a white supremacist, a sexist, a racist, a traitor, and even a mass murderer. The latter accusation was made by Trump's presidential opponent, Joe Biden, on the very eve of the election. Before the 70 million television viewers of the final presidential debate, Biden accused Trump of killing every COVID-19 patient who had died since the pandemic first took root. Biden said, 220,000 Americans dead. If you hear nothing else I say tonight, hear this. Anyone who's responsible for not taking control, in fact, not saying I take no responsibility initially, anyone who is responsible for that many deaths 
should not remain as President of the United States of America. Despite the constant drumbeat of these lies, when the 2020 election results were in, Trump had outperformed every incumbent president before him. Every one, including Barack Obama, had received fewer votes in his run for a second term. But in 2020, Trump miraculously increased his margin by 11.2 million votes, making his total of more than 74 million the most votes ever cast for an American president in the past. On the other hand, to believe that Biden had won, one would have to believe that a mentally challenged candidate who campaigned from his basement, who could hardly sustain a train of thought and couldn't get through a campaign speech without a teleprompter, whose crowds were generally in the low double digits, while Trump was drawing 30 and 50,000 supporters to his rallies, one would have to believe that this fumbling figure received nearly 12 million more votes than Barack Obama at his peak. Trump was also confident he'd won because despite all the irregularities and unconstitutional practices by the Biden campaign, Biden's margin of victory was still razor thin. Roughly 159 million total votes had been cast in the 2020 presidential election. Biden's margin of victory was 43,000, or 0.027% of the total. If the votes illegally cast in Pennsylvania and two other battleground states had been properly thrown out by the courts, Trump would have won. A second painful fact. Trump's recognition of this gut-wrenching fact was accompanied by another, the knowledge that in five of the six battleground states, Republican majorities ruled the legislatures but had refused to enforce the constitutional provision that would have declared the Democrat rules unconstitutional and secured his victory. Despite his direct appeals to these Republican legislators, they had sat on their hands and refused to either investigate or rectify the illegal proceedings. As the new year approached, Trump was running out of authorities he could appeal to if he was going to reverse the election result. The Trump team had filed 61 suits in the lower courts, nearly all of whom refused to examine the evidence. The only hope they had left was a lawsuit filed by the state of Texas. The Texas suit was backed by 126 of 196 Republicans in the House and 19 Republican states that filed motions in support. Trump referred to the case as the big one. It sought to delay the vote by presidential electors in the battleground states of Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, arguing that voting procedures in those states had been changed in violation of their own state laws and of the Constitution. These illegal votes in turn devalued the votes in other states like Texas by weighting the overall election result. On December 11th, despite its conservative majority, the Supreme Court refused to hear the suit. The Supreme Court really let us down, Trump tweeted in disappointment. No wisdom, no courage. There would be no justice for him from the judiciary. To disagree is an act of treason. In a typical comment by the political left, Biden spokesman Mike Gwynn said, The Supreme Court has decisively and speedily rejected the latest of Donald Trump and his allies' attacks on the democratic process. Gwynn added, This is no surprise. Dozens of judges, election officials from both parties, and Trump's own attorney general have dismissed his baseless attempts to deny that he lost the election. President-elect Biden's clear and commanding victory will be ratified by the Electoral College on Monday, and he will be sworn in on January 20.
The betrayals of the Republican legislatures were accompanied by the betrayals of other prominent Republicans who owed Trump and American voters more fealty than they were able to muster. This included Attorney General William Barr, Vice President Mike Pence, and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, all of whom could have stepped forward to support his quest for a fair hearing, but didn't. Throughout Trump's efforts to rectify a corrupt election, Democrats deliberately and consistently confused the act of questioning an election result with an attack on democracy itself, which they pointedly associated with treason. I think this borders on treason, House Majority Leader Steny H. Hoyer told the Washington Post. He is undermining the very essence of democracy, which is, you go to the poll, you vote, and the people decide. There's no doubt that the people decided. Echoing the general tenor of the media response, the Post's star Washington reporter Dana Milbank wrote, President Trump broke any number of laws and norms during his ruinous four-year reign. He just added one more on the way out. Treason. Democrats and their partisan media leveled this grave charge, calculating that to do so would intimidate their opponents into inaction. To be accused of being an enemy of democracy and a traitor to your country is obviously a damaging accusation for anyone with political ambitions, particularly with a media that functions as an echo chamber for such charges. This was no doubt a significant factor in the defections of Republican elected officials. Despite the Democrats' claim that challenging a vote is treason, the fact remains that such challenges happen all the time and are perfectly legitimate within a democratic framework. Dictatorships outlaw critics of their elections. Democracies don't. But raising hypocrisy to whole new levels, the Democrats themselves had questioned the results of all three Republican presidential election victories since 2000, agitated to decertify electors, and attempted to reverse the results. Stop the Steal In a last-ditch effort, Trump announced that he would hold a Stop the Steal rally on January 6, 2021, the date the House of Representatives was scheduled to convene to certify the electors and confirm the election result. Because he was aware that lawlessness had become an accepted norm in Democrat cities since the death of George Floyd in May 2020, and since there were bad actors battling each other from both sides during those riots, Trump offered to provide 10,000 Federal National Guard troops to protect the Capitol on January 6. His offer was rejected by the Democrat mayor and Black Lives Matter supporter Muriel Bowser. Trump's offer was also rejected by Nancy Pelosi and the Capitol Police. Trump's Stop the Steal rally took place at the Ellipse, a park located about two miles from the Capitol. The president spoke for well over an hour to an estimated 100,000 supporters. His speech focused on the weak Republicans who failed to protect the integrity of the election. A second theme was the necessity of building a new Republican Party that was ready to fight to put America first and restore its traditions. He summoned the crowd to achieve this by primarying the weak Republicans in the 2022 midterms and replacing them with Republicans that, quote, fight like hell. A long third section of his speech was devoted to describing the evidence of fraud that Democrats were denying existed. For years, Democrats have gotten away with election fraud, Trump told the crowd. Weak Republicans, he said, were responsible for that fact. I think I'm going to use the term, the weak Republicans. You've got a lot of them. 
They've turned a blind eye, even as Democrats enacted policies that chipped away our jobs, weakened our military, threw open our borders, and put America last. This year, using the pretext of the China virus and the scam of mail-in ballots, Democrats attempted the most brazen and outrageous election theft, and there's never been anything like this. So pure a theft in American history. Everybody knows it. You have to get your people to fight, he continued. And if they don't fight, we have to primary the hell out of the ones that don't fight. You primary them, because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength, and you have to be strong. We have come to demand that Congress do the right thing, and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated, lawfully slated. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. The bulk of the speech was devoted to laying out the evidence his supporters had amassed of election fraud that Democrats were alleging didn't exist. The dead voters, the illegal voters, the people who no longer lived in the state but voted, the districts in which more votes were turned in than there were voters in the district, the bad practices, mail-in ballots, unsecured drop boxes, third-party ballot harvesting that had been illegally introduced into the electoral process to make cheating easier. In Pennsylvania, Trump said, the Democrat Secretary of State and the Democrat State Supreme Court justices illegally abolished the signature verification requirements just 11 days prior to the election. So think of what they did. No longer is there signature verification. 11 days before the election, they say we don't want it. You know why they don't want it? Because they want to cheat. That's the only reason. Who would even think of that? We don't want to verify a signature? It was a good question, but to raise it, according to Democrats, was treason. Trump's speech ended with these words. We're going to try and give the weak Republicans the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. So let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue.